This is Randy G. They call me the Commish, and you are listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. Enjoy it. It is a great podcast. What's going on, guys? Before we talk some boxing with the Commish, Randy Gordon, I got to tell you about AdamandEve.com. AdamandEve.com. Listen, I'm up here in New York City. It's cold. It's snowing. It's rainy. The holidays are coming. You don't want to leave the house. You're inside your apartment. You're inside the house. Put on the fireplace, have some fun, cuddle up with that special someone and make it a special, special evening with that special, special someone. AdamandEve.com, promo code SAFO, S-A-F-O, for 10 free gifts. How can you beat that? Maybe a sexy item for him. Maybe a special, sensual gift for her. And a third gift that you'll both enjoy. And wait, 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 wait. I know I said 10 tantalizing gifts. So that was three. Wait for this. Six free spicy hot movies. That's nine. And I'm going to throw in one more thing. Free shipping. Free shipping when you enter the promo code SAFO. S-A-F-O at the checkout. AdamandEve.com. We love them. Now here's the commish. The commish. We're finally doing this. I can't believe it. How long has it been? How long have we been trying to set this up? <laughs> Since, uh, somewhere around uh, late April. <laughs> it was. It really has. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Deep breath. Former editor of Ring Magazine, youngest commissioner in the history of New York State boxing, on-air talent calling fights, former amateur boxer, radio host, and now author. And to think when I met you, Jerry Cooney said you were his intern. I didn't know how much stuff you did, man. (laughs) You have been involved in every aspect of boxing. Yes. Um, And that just – it's a head shaker for me because I think you know as – when I started in this game as – basically an 11-year-old as a fan, all I ever did, I wanted to be ringside for one fight, never dreaming that I'm going to do more things in the sport maybe than anybody. From commissioner in New York and editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, editor-in-chief of Boxing Illustrated, World Boxing Magazine, International Boxing, Big Book (laughs) of Boxing, promoter at the Foxwoods Casino for two years, the biggest casino on on the planet, Um, and now going on my 11th year as host of the biggest radio show on this planet, Sirius XM's At The Fights with Gentleman Jerry Cooney, who uh, we're having shirts made up saying Cooney for President 2020. (laughs) I think he could win it. Actually. I would love to see him debate, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and listen, if he can't out debate, he's going to knock you out. That's what he's going to do. And he's so intimidating. <clears throat> but I want to talk about your book, Glove Affair, my lifelong journey in the world of professional boxing. And a little known fact, I was the first person to read this book. You really were because I sent in all my, my chapters one by one to Roman and Littlefield. And they, keep, they were sending it back to edit, take this out, put a little bit more, give me this, give me less of this. Uh, give me a date on this, whatever. Now it's all done. The easiest part for anybody who wants to write a book is the writing of the book. The hardest part is after you sell it, all the editing that you have to do, they're like, well, I I actually gave them about 155,000 words, and I had to cut it down to about 115,000 words. So I had to take out around 45,000 words or so, in essence, basically I had to cut about eight chapters. And it's like, where do you cut from? But when it was all said and done, they sent me the whole thing finished back as an email 
and you were the first person I sent it to. So that's always going to be. But why was that? Because I remember I was leaving for a, f- uh, a flight, and I said, hey, when I get back, I want to have you on. And you're like, is there any way we can wait for the book to come out? Mm-hmm. I'm like, of course. And you're like, hey, do you have email? I'm going to send you a copy of the book. So I'm, I read it. I have like a 15-hour flight. Right. And I'm like, I'm going to read a, a chapter or two. I destroy the whole book on vacation. I finish the whole book. We'll get to it in a second. I came back and texted you, and you go, be honest with me. Because you were the first person to read it. I was blown away. Oh blown away because I'll tell you this, Randy. Obviously, it was about boxing. You told boxing stories. You got so emotional. You put yourself out there with these personal stories that for 11 years, you can listen to yourself on radio. You're not going to hear those stories. You put your heart and soul. This was your baby because you're reading a, story, uh, a chapter about Tyson and then reading one about your, your buddy Wayne. You got so emotional with it. You put your life and heart and soul into this book, and it was – I was blown away with it. You know, and and I thank you very much because that's exactly what I did. And that's what the book is. It's not a boxing book per se, left to the body, right to the head. His nose was bleeding a little bit and they stopped the blood. No, it's not that. It is me telling a lot of these stories as the fight fan, as the kid from Long Island who at, at 10 years old was severely burned on my right leg, almost lost the leg, almost lost my life, and in a wheelchair where I was for one year, I found boxing on television when I was 11 years old, got hooked on it because I wanted to get out of that wheelchair. And I saw these guys dancing around with so much grace. And I said, I got to do that. And it made me get out of my wheelchair. It made me take basically my dead, burned right leg, work out like nobody you've ever seen. And to this day... At 70 years old, I could outrun most humans because I wanted to. I was going to. And I got so hooked on boxing that it took me, I'm going to fight a little bit. I fought in the amateurs, I had, and I had a very nice amateur record of 37-2. I had one pro fight, got my ass kicked, <laughs> 0-1. I made it into the second round. I even won the first round. Oh. Get knocked out. But the guy was three weight classes heavier. But I learned something that night about commissions, good commissions, bad commissions, things you should do, shouldn't do. And I learned I was like a sponge taking everything in. And then I wrote about it. I talked about it. And one job fell into my lap after another. And then it was during when Rocky Marciano died when I was 20 years old that I met the remember 1969 mm-hmm. there's no internet and i met nat fleischer yes see that's the part of the book that really captured me i'll tell you this I'll, we'll tell stories back and forth i'm so passion driven so if i like i love radio i love podcasting so i harassed opie till he hired me to do a show with him everything i do i go obsessively with it and i mm-hmm. always feel it's a negative sometimes that if i'm gonna <clears throat> i'm trying to learn a language right now my wife's filipino so i'm trying to learn tagalog and I'm doing like five hours a day. Even she's like, please stop. Like, I'm so obsessive. Please tell the story. Because when I read this, your first chapter, it made me, one, have a new appreciation for you. Two, love the book even more. You wake up. You get ready to go for a run. You don't check Twitter. There's no Facebook. Right. You grab the newspaper. And what's the headline say? Rocky Marciano dead. And I look at it. And I'm what? And then I pick up. Another newspaper, you know, I'm, this is about 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going out for the run, and the papers are on the step, and I take another newspaper, and I look. The Rock killed in plane crash. 
what the hell? So it was always a ritual for me. I, I, when I was going out for a run, I would take the papers, tiptoe into my parents' bedroom, and leave the paper quietly on the side of my father's bed. So this time I couldn't just leave it there, and I went over to him, and I just finished doing my audio book. So I'm going to give you the, like what I, I did. <laughs> I, went, I went over to the, my father's side of the bed. He was sleeping, and I went, Dad. He didn't wake up. He didn't budge. My second, Dad, got him to open his eyes. He looked up at me. And what is it, Randy? And I held the paper over his face where he sees the rock dead. And with that, my father went, Oh, my goodness, what happened? And I start whispering to him, and he's reading it. Now, my dad was an airline pilot, and Rocky, of course, was killed in a plane crash, so dad got even more involved in it, turns over, taps my mom, who was fast asleep, and he goes, honey, honey, wake up, look. And she rolled over, what's the matter? And he goes, honey, look. And she rubs the sleep from her eyes, and she looked at the headline, and she started to, like, she went, good luck and clamps her hands over her mouth. And I said, it's Rocky Marciano, Mom. He was killed in a plane crash. With that, I don't know what came over me, but I decided I had to speak to Nat Fleischer. And who is Nat? Nat Fleischer was the editor-in-chief, the founder, the president of Ring Magazine back in the 20s. He started Ring Magazine. He was the first guy to do ratings. He was known as Mr. Boxing. And again, there was no internet. In 1969, the only guy who really the media knew that was covering boxing was Howard Cosell. And Cosell wasn't really yet the big, powerful Howard Cosell. He was... But he would still become more and more of a voice He wasn't wasn't the icon yet. The journalist in boxing who wrote about it, talked about it, did the ratings. When he said a guy was number one, the boxing world, everybody listened. Nat Fleischer. So I decided I'm going to get on a Long Island Railroad train. I'm going to go into Ring Magazine. I'm going to sit down with Nat Fleischer and have a talk with Nat Fleischer. How in the world can you possibly go into – I decided I'm going to do that. How old were you at this point? I was 20 years old. Now, let me ask you this, Randy. If, did you go there because you need to speak about this? This was your guy? Or there was no other forum for you to speak to somebody? Like, now if the Yankees lose two nights ago, I can go on Twitter and read everyone else's heartbreak. Did you need to go do something? You need to vent? Did you need answers? I, I can't even answer that question. I don't know what possessed me, what came over me that I'm going to go to Ring Magazine. I never was at the offices of Ring before in New York City. Never met Nat Fleischer. He didn't know me from anybody. He would just walk. Well, I get into his office at 120 West 31st Street in Midtown Manhattan. I walk in, take this slow elevator up to the fifth floor where there's all kinds of smells in the elevator. Cigarettes, cigars, mildew, perfume, (laughs) just Everything, all kind of a mixture of body odor. It was an elevator that I've never been, in my life been in anything like this. It stops. It takes about 30 seconds for the door to open. It slides open real slow. 
And I get off now into the hallway of Ring Magazine, and on my right was a was a reception area, and this old secretary was sitting back there, and she was like, Can I help you, Sonny? And I said, Yes, I'm a fight fan from Long Island, and, and, and I, I know what happened to Rocky Marciano, and I really want to speak to Nat Fleischer. Can I, is it possible to speak to Nat Fleischer? She goes, Do you have an interview? you have an appointment with Mr. Fleischer? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't. Well, he's very busy today, and he's not going to be able to see you, so please turn around and go to the elevator. And I was like, but, sir, son, please. I turned around. I head to the elevator when the door to Nat Fleischer's office opened up, and out comes this little bald-headed, and he looks. He goes, hello, son, can I help you? And I said, Mr. Fleischer. And I run over to him. I'm just about hugging him and kissing him. And, oh, slow down, Sonny. What, what? How can I? And I said, Mr. Fleischer, Mr. Fleischer, I'm a longtime reader of Ring Magazine. And I can't believe that Rocky Marciano would. He, and he, with that, the secretary looked like she was about to throw me out again. And he said, okay, slow down. What's your name? And I said, my name is Randy Gordon. And, and I'm a big and I slowed down. I said, I'm a big reader of Ring Magazine. I'm a fight fan, personified. And I, I, I just had to come in and, and see you. He said, well, we have a television crew coming up here from ABC in a little while. I'll tell you what, why don't you come into my office? I'll show you around. Then he turned to the secretary who was just throwing me out. He said, Millie, get Mr. Gordon here something to drink and give him a couple of uh, issues of his favorite reading material. Wow. And she just looked at me. Nodded her head. He walks me into his office, and we we proceed to talk. And this is 1969. Little do I realize that 10 years later, I'm going to be in that very office, sitting in that very seat at that very desk as the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. Connect the dots. Go from there. Give me that 10 years, because how did you get into that seat within 10 years and... Have you ever thought about if I just went for that run after reading that headline, maybe clearing my head, your whole life's different? You know, there was a movie years ago, and I really recommend this movie. It's, it's a cute movie, but a, a real good premise and something that you're talking about. It's called Sliding Doors. You're about to get on the train, but you miss it and the door closes. And as the door closes, you look and you see some gorgeous woman. And she turns, she looks at you, and right there, you're connecting. But the train pulls away, and you never meet her. Sliding doors. The door opens, you come running in just as the door's closed, you just made it. You look at this gorgeous woman. She looks at you, you know you've connected. Bing, bing, bing. She turns out to be everything that you've ever wanted. You turn out to be everything she wanted. You get married. That one second in life, and it, it goes so many, you know, you step into a street like Pernell Whitaker, you get killed. You're one second later stepping into the street, that car passes you. You're in the right place at the right time, the wrong place in the wrong time. Had Rocky Marciano not been killed, I would have never gone in to meet mm -hmm. Nat Fleischer. Well, it wasn't like that was... That was basically the start. Nat Fleischer said, stay in touch with me. And when you graduate college, 
I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you a job here at Ring Magazine. <laughs> but the thing is, as fate would have it, as I graduated, basically right at that time, Nat Fleischer, who was an elderly man, came down with pneumonia and he died. Nobody knew that he was going to hire me. So I proceeded on and it took a few more years and then I started with, I sent a, a resume out to Stanley Weston, who's in the Hall of Fame. And Stanley Weston had World Boxing, International Boxing. I, I actually lived around the corner on Long Island where their offices were. And he had me start as a boxing writer for him. And that's where it began. And I spent five or six years with Stanley Weston. And then in 1979, Burt Randolph Sugar called me up. And he said, Randy, I'd like to speak to you. I got your number from so-and-so. And he said, I have purchased Ring Magazine. I would like you to be my editor. I'm going to be the publisher. I'd like you to be the editor. Can you meet with me? Is this something you would want? And I, I was like, oh, my God, yes. Bert Sugar calling you up. Oh and my God. just like that, I never met Bert. I didn't know. I knew a little bit about Bert from him in years past, having a few other magazines like Argosy and a few others. And I met with him in a little bar not far from here called O'Reilly's. And I walked in, and Bert is sitting by himself with a beer and a sandwich and papers in front of him. And as I walked in, I, he said, I'm going to have a cigar in my hand and a hat on my head. And sure enough, I walked in. There's Bert Sugar. And he said, welcome, my new editor. And I said, wait, we haven't even spoken yet. He said, I know that you're going to be my new editor. <laughs> he laid it out for me. And I said, Bert, I would love to. He then yells to all the patrons. He said, everybody, this is my new editor, the editor of Ring Magazine. Drinks are on the house. Wow. He buys drinks for everybody in the room. And I'm thinking, what a character. I've never met anybody like this. And for the next five years, I worked side by side with Bert Sugar, who allowed me to design Ring Magazine, be Ring Magazine, just put it out there, bounce stuff off of him. There were times when Bert would pull all-nighters and he would start an editorial and then come in the next morning totally exhausted, maybe a few too many drinks, <laughs> fall out on his desk. But we were on deadline. We had to have the copy in three hours ago. I would look at his editorial, see where he was going with it, and then finish his editorial. And all this, of course, this is 1979, 1980, 81. Again, still really no computers. Mm -hmm. Everything was typewriters. Even to his dying day a few years ago, Bert refused to have a computer. He did everything on his typewriter. You, respect, you know that. You respect that, though, don't you? You respect him staying old school. <laughs> totally old school, but Bert allowed me to be me. When I got hired by ESPN in 1980, he would allow me to go off and, and do my announcing and then come right back, and I would do my, my editing right on the plane and, and do my writing on the plane. And uh, working with Bert Sugar was just an amazing journey. Is it still the most successful, best-selling top um, ring magazine with uh, Hitman Hearns? That was your design, wasn't it? Yeah. Explain it's, that. Cause that, that Even if you're not a boxing guy, there's a few magazine covers that you know the magazine cover. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a famous Mickey Mantle one, Sports Illustrated. It's the black and white. Mm -hmm. And the truth, 
even if you're not a boxing fan, you know the Hitman Hearns with the with the machine gun, with with, with the Tommy gun. Like I'm about gun. to tell you something about that. Tell me yes. Tell me. Tommy Hearns was undefeated at that time, 1981. He's headed towards a fight with Sugar Ray Leonard. Tommy Hearns is undefeated. He's unbeaten, knocking everybody out. He was called either the Motor City Cobra or the Hitman. And sitting at O'Reilly's. Now, Bert and I did every magazine. Most editors sit with their, their crew in the office. No, no, not, not Bert and I. Bert and I, and I'm not, I'm not a drinker. Bert was. And we would go to O'Reilly's every time it was time for our editorial meeting. Me and Bert go to O'Reilly's, sit there with a, at the bar with a beer, and he would take notes on the napkins. And he'd scribble notes on napkins, stuff them in his pocket, and they would be all over his desk, and I'd have to rifle through all, all these napkins to find what he wrote about this and that and I said Bert let's put Tommy Hearns on the cover as a hitman like holding a gun and he said no 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 good idea good idea not not a not a gun um, a Tommy gun I said Bert where are we gonna get a Tommy gun <laughs> he, I, I don't know we'll think of it and I said and Bert let's dress him like in a sinister looking black suit and one of your hats. He, he goes, great idea. He goes, let's work on getting a Tommy gun. <laughs> so I said, oh, I know, I know, I know where we can get one. He said, you do? Where? I said, I'm going to bring it in tomorrow. And I brought it in and Bert looks at it. And goes, Holy. Okay. Great. He said, do you, do you think it's going to shoot? Okay. It's a black Tommy gun. We got a black suit for Tommy to wear. Mm -hmm. We rented a suit. We put him in the suit. We put him in one of Bert's sinister-looking hats. And he looked every bit like he was a hitman. Dressed him just totally appropriate. And he's holding the Tommy gun. The thing is, every time we were taking a shot, and he didn't have much time because he had to change he had to then get out of that suit, and he had a press conference to go to. We were running out of time. And every time we were taking a shot, and this is 1981, there really were no um, cameras where you, like the motor drive where you could just hit it and click, 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 okay. and you'd take a billion shots, and one of them would be the shot. Our photographer, Jack Goodman, and, and also Shelton Minor, they're just shooting and shooting and shooting. The thing is, Tommy was laughing. He wouldn't, he couldn't hold the straight face. And I'm standing two feet away going, Tommy, mean. I want you mean. You're a hitman. Mean. Stop the, Tommy, would you stop laughing? Tommy. And he's <coughs> cracking up. And I said, just give me one second. Like this. And I'm making faces at him. He's making faces back. But as soon as he would, he'd crack up. And Jackie Goodman and Shelton are just bang, 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 shooting one shot after another. Finally, Jackie goes, I got it! Because I'm sure I got the photo. With that, it was guesswork, because maybe he didn't get it. Maybe it was blurry, whatever. Tommy had a go. So he left. Jackie goes in the dark room, develops 
hundreds of shots. Nothing worked except that one shot. That he knew that he and got. that was wow. it. And we went with it. It turned out to be the biggest seller in the history of boxing magazines. It actually was so sinister looking that Tommy, who had signed deals with several different companies to do advertising, he was so sinister looking, they dropped all their deals with him. He lost millions of dollars because of that. Because he was the hitman on your He was the hitman. And by the way, the Tommy gun was my son's water pistol. I was going to ask you, how did you get the Tommy gun? My son's $2.99 water pistol. The Ring Magazine cover issues, were you there for most of them, like doing the photo shoots for a lot of them? Yes, yes. Bert and I always discussed what we wanted, and Bert gave me basically free reign for the covers. And some of them were Bert's, and we also had a great art director, Richard Cubis. Richard was was a French was a Frenchman, and sometimes he would have editorial design because he'd convince Bert that he had the cover. But sometimes it was it was too artsy looking, and I wasn't crazy about him. I wanted the old fight stuff. One of them was Matthew Saad Muhammad, who it's a very beautiful cover of the very dark skinned Matthew Saad Muhammad, former light heavyweight champion, dressed in white boxing shoes, white trunks to play off his skin color, uh, white shoes, white boxing trunks, white hand wraps, sitting against a white backdrop with, with like a dry ice w- with a mist coming up. It was such a beautiful, it's one of my favorite. It hangs in my house. I was going to ask you, do you have all of them displayed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? And that's one of my favorite. We actually put Howard Cosell on the cover. Now, when Bert and I talked about it, Bert suggested it, and I said, Bert, I don't know if, if Howard Cosell, and then Bert said, think about this. Ring Magazine can also be a very popular, the boxing community is going to buy it, but also when it's on the stands in many of the, in the supermarkets, people look and if they see somebody like a Howard Cosell, they might say, Howard Cosell, look at that shot. And they might buy it right there. And sure enough, we took a tight headshot. We went through hundreds of shots of Howard Cosell. And we took a tight face shot, put him on the cover of Ring Magazine, another massive seller. Why? Because the boxing world bought it. And then the people outside of the boxing world who knew Howard Cosell. Because he was doing every other sport. He was doing football. He was doing everything. So, and then he called me up right after he was on the cover. He said, let me tell you something, Mr. Gordon. That is one of the greatest photos, greatest covers. You are going to sell a record with me on the cover. (laughs) And I, I loved Howard Cosell. And I, I love my five years at, at Ring Magazine, and that was more or less, uh, you know, if the days at World and International Boxing were the diving board for me to the springboard, then Ring Magazine was the high board. I was now going off the high board doing triple gainers into the water. That, that was, you know, getting five zeros in every one. Now you dive using your terminology, into uh, ESPN. Is that how you got into the ESPN mm-hmm. commentary? So they and knew who you are? The fledgling 1980 comes around. I'm editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. 
the fledgling cable station, the entertainment and sports programming network. The worldwide leader. And we we had actually, they, they called me up and asked if I would like to try out. And I passed with flying colors. And there was a few guys already doing it. Dwayne Bobbick, the former heavyweight contender. Ray Mancini was doing it. And they chose me over them. And they said, well, every fight is going to be done by Sal Marciano. And on the West Coast, it's going to be a guy by the name of Al Bernstein. <laughs> and on the, the East Coast, you. And you're going to divide the center of the country stuff. So I did one week. Al did the next. I did the next. Al did the next. I would do two weeks. Al would do two weeks. Back and forth, we went. But in the beginning, when we came on, it always had to be live from Atlantic City. We have another edition of the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. And they shortened it eventually to ESPN. And to this day, ESPN is um, just about... You know, I should have had a tattoo put on of ESPN. It was part of me. When uh, I had Boom Boom Mancini on, Chris Algieri comes on all the time. And we talk about commentary. Mm-hmm. And they said the work that you have to go into it kind of shocked them. Like, Chris was telling me, he's like, Mike, there might be six fights coming on. Now you have to know 12 boxers. And you'll know who the big guys are. But there's some random dude from mm-hmm. uh, Guatemala who's fighting. You need to know facts on him. Did that surprise you? They had to go in-depth knowing how much research you had to do on these guys? We, you know, I just did that with Jerry Cooney this week. I'm in, up in Canada in a place called Peterborough. We knew the main event fighters, but as much as we try to reach out on Facebook, a couple of them, I found them. I, I sent them Facebook messages. They got back to me. I sent them a bio sheet. They sent it right back. But there, there were several fights on the card, and even though I might have one of them or two of them, I didn't have their opponent. I was able to look on box rec on mm-hmm. the internet sure. and get there. And you have to play with what you have. And when the bell rings, it's round number one. And this nameless fighter that I know nothing about. <laughs> In the blue trunks. <laughs> yeah. I know nothing about them. No, I have no idea if they had 100 amateur fights or they had none. They're stepping off the street. They were drunk less. I have no idea. Throws a right hand to and you just got to play with what you have. And that's what announcers do. But when you're working usually with a network and you're doing a fight card, they have a, a team that does all that for you. They send you the bio two weeks in advance. Like a PDF, Chris, said of like a thousand. <laughs> oh, it's amazing how thick it is. You know, when I did some stuff with ESPN back in the day and I was their original, I was their boxing consultant. And Bert made me stop. He said, I think it's a conflict of interest for you to be the boxing consultant for HBO and being the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. And I said to, uh, to Seth Abraham, I can't do this anymore, but I'll tell you what, just call me. And they were paying me $50 a month. Yo, I mean, so you're, 50, <laughs> 50 bucks a month to be the editor, uh, the editor to, to be the uh, boxing consultant for HBO. And I approve so many fights. Who would you rather see Hagler against this guy or Hagler against this guy? Oh, come on. Put Hagler on with this guy. And they always went with who I recommended. And it turned out to be outstanding events. I don't want to give all the stories away, but your integrity has followed you. 
your whole entire life, and that's what got you. We're gonna get to that in a minute with the governor and stuff. Mm-hmm. Your integrity kind of uh, got you fired from ESPN, though. Did not, it? Not kind of. <laughs> um, you got got me fired. I became the first announcer ever to get fired from ESPN, uh, and and I say that I I could never have dreamed in 1982 when I got fired because I was so depressed. You know, here it is. My career is blooming. I'm the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. I'm on ESPN every week, and people know who I am. I go to restaurants and saying hello to me. I love it. This is a dream. I see a fighter in South Carolina. We were doing a show. It was me and the announcer, Sam Rosen. And it turned out that one of the fighters who was fighting the late Billy Collins, who is another guy in my, in my book, um, I see that this guy he's fighting is listed as Rahim Taib. I have no idea who Rahim Taib is, but as a matter of fact, Rahim Taib is really another fighter who got knocked out five nights earlier. And I, I went to Teddy Brenner, the matchmaker at Top Rank. I told Bob Arum, I told Top Rank, and they basically told me, okay, fine, shut up about it. Now, how'd you know? Because you're such an... You're obsessive, so you watched him fight five well, nights it ago. it turned out that where he got knocked out was at Madison Square Garden. I was at the fight. I was sitting ringside. <laughs> so I see him get knocked out. Now, five nights earlier, he's under suspension. I see him in South Carolina. I'm going, wait a minute. Where, where do I know you from? And it turns out, I said, wait a minute. You're the guy from Madison Square Garden who just got knocked out. He said, no, that was my twin brother. And wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> No, way. your name is Eddie Flanning. He said, no, no, I'm Anthony Flanning. My brother Eddie got knocked out. I'm Anthony Flanning. I said, and you got the same scar as your brother? Are you guys clones? And he kept, "Uh, no, that that wasn't me. It was my brother. It it was him. And I called up Teddy Brenner, the late, great International Boxing Hall of Fame matchmaker, one of the, maybe the best matchmaker in the history of boxing. And Teddy and I were real good friends up until that point. And Teddy just told me, you shut your mouth. And I said, Teddy, you got one of three choices. One, you kill the fight entirely. Two, you pull Flanning, Taib, whatever you want to call him, out of the fight, and you get a last-second replacement. Or three, you let the fight go on. But if you let the fight go on, I am going to mention it. And he said, if you mention it, you're fired. And I said, I don't work for Top Rank. I work for ESPN. He said, we'll see about that. Well, back in 1982, Top Rank Boxing was the sport, the show on ESPN. They exerted tremendous pressure over ESPN. ESPN let me go. But they said, let's have a cooling down period. It was something I didn't know about. And we'll, we'll get them back on the air. Well, I got so ticked off that I, all the media called me. They did stories on me. I ripped ESPN. I ripped <laughs> Top Rank. They had no choice but to let me go. To really fire you this time. Yeah. Now I'm right. I'm really fired. Well, it turns out that over the years, then I became commissioner in New York. And the, and, and the thing is, and I think you're going to ask me, how did that come about? Well, right. My first question was going to be, why did you, why'd you say it? Is it because you love boxing so much? You didn't want this guy hurt? Why'd you say Because when I mentioned this story to my father and my grandfather, I was telling him about it. My grandfather knew exactly who you were. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I wonder why he said it. Why did you say Why did you tell? 
because I had to. Yeah. It, it was something, it was the truth. And I couldn't sit there and make like, and it's Billy Collins against Raheem Taib. You would look, not, like, a, you would look no, like a fool. You would look like a fool. And, right, I, even if nobody realized it, I realized it. And I couldn't live with that. And the chapter in the book is called A Choice to Make. Mm -hmm. And I think we all in life come up against that time when we have a choice to make. What was it going to get me if I mentioned it? And Teddy Brenner said, what are you going to get, some award? Well, yeah, you did. <laughs> and Well... No, I wasn't looking for an award for being a top journalist. I wanted to do what was right, not to sit there and lie and say that the guy's name is Raheem Taib and never mention this. I said, well, he's fighting. I didn't just mention it because Teddy now has already threatened my job. So not only do I mention it, I beat it to <laughs> death over and over. I mention it that this is a guy who's under suspension uh, five nights earlier. He got knocked out. He's under suspension. He's under suspension. He's under suspension. Did He's you, under suspension. Did you say his real name? You were saying And that. his name is not Raheem Taib. No, it's Eddie Flanning. It's Eddie Flanning. He's oh. under suspension. He got knocked out. I was there. I saw him get knocked out. He says it's not him. It's his brother. It's him. And I, I beat it to death on ESPN. To death I beat it. <laughs> I mean, I think I made the point that I... Didn't just say it. I mentioned it over and over. And I said, Sam, you were at ringside that night. And Sam covered it very well. He said, well, you know, I was at ringside, and it does look like the same guy. But then he got off it. And of I, but I, I did. Of course you did. So now you thought you, you, thought you were fired. You were, it was a cooling off period. Then you go destroy them in the press to anyone who reaches oh, out to Oh, the next you. day and the day after and uh, Newsday, the Daily News, the New York Post, the, the L.A. Times, you name it. They were all over it that, that ESPN's boxing announcer gets fired for telling the truth. And then you think you're getting prank called by your buddy. Tell me about this prank call that sent you down to the World Trade Center. It, you know, I get a call. It's okay. That incident with with flanning was 1982 <laughs> now let's let's advance it you know i'm i'm at ring magazine i'm at a ring magazine um i'm full-time as a sportscaster with the usa network with the madison square garden network now it's 1988 it's six years later and it's the summertime of summer of 88 and my phone rings and a lady gets on the phone uh my phone rings and i hear and i I answered it, and I always answer, Randy G. Yeah, yeah I just and heard she you. she goes, hi, Mr. Gordon. Is, is this Randy Gordon? And I said, yes, it is. She goes, please hold for Governor Cuomo. What? The governor of New York at that time was Mario Cuomo, the father of our present governor. And, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. Governor Cuomo's calling me? Okay, th this is some joke. Now, you have to understand that even to this day, I'm a practical joker. My buddy Jerry Cooney's a practical joker. And a lot of my sportscasting friends, Bruce Beck from NBC is a sure, practical joker. Sure. And we all are. And we call each other with different voices. We call us Howard Cosell. We call us Marv Albert. And I've put many people on. The great, the Hall of Famer, Shelley Finkel. In 1984, I called Shelly up when Mark Breland was ready to go to the Olympics. I called Shelly's office, and 
his secretary picks up and I say, hello, may I speak to Shelly Finkel? This is Howard Cosell. And she goes, hold on, Mr. Cosell. And Shelly gets on. I say, hello, Shelly, this is Howard. And Shelly's, hello, Howard, how are Shelly, I want to get Mark Breland in studio with me. I want to do a big, I want to do an hour spectacular with Mark Breland. He is my boy. I know you love him. I think he's a great fighter. And Shelly's, oh, I would love that, Howard. And then all of a sudden, as I'm talking, he's, wait a minute. <laughs> Randy, he starts screaming at me, screaming at me. Randy, what are you doing? I am having a very bad day. I've got Bruce Springsteen in concert. He called in sick. I got to give 50,000 tickets back. What are you, why don't you grow up? With that, he hangs up on me. But little do I know, and at this time I'm still editor of Ring Magazine. Little do I realize, two seconds later, the phone rings in Shelley's office. Hello, this no, is Howard no Cosell. Yeah, no this is way. true. This is Howard Cosell. May I speak to Shelley Finkel, please? The secretary says, hold on. She puts me on hold and says, Shelley, it's Randy doing Cosell again. He picks up the phone and is screaming at Cosell. Are you crazy? And Howard's going, Shelly, calm down. This is Howard Cosell. I don't know who you think you're speaking to. This is Howard Cosell. Then Shelly realizes it is Howard it's Cosell. It's real Howard Cosell. And he just made a, an ass out of himself. He speaks to Howard, calms down, says, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm having a very bad day. Calls me up at Ring Magazine. Now screaming, do you know what you made me do? Why don't you grow up? Hangs up. I just yelled at Howard Cosell. <laughs> yeah, so he later, and Shelly is one of my best friends to this day, but it was just one of those moments. So now I'm getting the call from the governor of New York, and I'm thinking it's one of my friends doing the same thing to me. Sure. And I'm saying, Governor Cuomo, you know, it definitely sounds Whoever this is doing a great Governor Cuomo. And not many people do a Cuomo. No, I knew Cuomo, and but he didn't know me. I didn't know him other than being the governor and listening to so many of his incredible speeches. Greatest speaker I have ever heard. Now, I would put him as a politician, best speaker ever. I think Barack Obama was an incredible speaker. They, they just don't make him like that. And I'm saying, who is this? And he's going, it's Governor Cuomo. I said, okay, l let's say it really is Governor Cuomo. Why would you be calling me? And he said, because I would like you to become the boxing commissioner in New York. I said, ah, you want me to be the boxing commissioner? And he said, you really don't think it's me, do you? I said, no. I said, I do know this, that Mario Cuomo has more of an Italian inflection in his voice. He starts speaking Italian to me that's educated, beautiful Italian. You're saying this to him. No, because then he starts speaking to me. None of my Italian friends speak Italian like that. And I'm going, who is this? And he said, it's Governor Cuomo. He said, tell you what, Randy, I could see you really don't think it's me. But tell you what, how about my office, and remember, this is 1988, mm -hmm. is in the World Trade Center. I'd like you to come in. How's um, Tuesday? And this is on a Friday. He calls me up, and it's, it's, it's Friday. He says, how about you come into my office on Tuesday? You're going to go to the uh, 
building one. You're going to take the elevator to the 40th floor. You're going to get up for the 40th floor. You're going to change, and you're going to take the elevator the rest of the way up. You're going to take it to floor 54. When the door opens, you're going to see a big sign that says Office of the Governor of the State of New York, Mario M. Cuomo. There's going to be a uniformed officer standing there with a clipboard. Give him the credit of the doubt that, that it's my office. Okay? With that, I dress up because I figure it's one of my friends going to meet me on the 40th floor and say, tricked you. Let's go up to the uh, windows on the world. Let's do some lunch. But I put on a suit and tie. Get off at the 40th floor. I look around. Nobody. I take it to the 54th floor. Sure enough, the door opens up. There's this uniformed officer. And I'm like, oh, my God. He says, can I help you? And I said, sir, somebody's playing a joke on me and told me that the governor is expecting me. He said, your name? I said, Randy Gordon. He goes, the governor is expecting you. Please have a seat over here and points I go, my butt is on the couch for two seconds. He looks, he goes, come with me, Mr. Gordon. We walk into this airlock. One door opens like it's about a foot thick of bulletproof glass. That shuts. As it shuts, the one in front of us opens up. He goes, look down the hall, walk straight down, look to your right. Down the hall, you're going to see another uniformed officer. He will show you into the governor's office. I walk down. The guy waves at me. I walk down to him, he shakes my hand, says, hello, Mr. Gordon, knocks on the door, you hear, come on. We open the door, and in one of the biggest, most gorgeous offices I've ever seen, there behind the desk, getting up, heading over to me, is one of the greatest politicians, the greatest speaker I've ever heard, Mario M. Cuomo. I go to shake his hand. He bats it away. He goes, come here. Let me hug my new commissioner. And I looked at him. I said, you weren't joking, were you? He said, do you have any doubt that it's me now? I said, no. And I said, but I didn't even think it was real. He said, let me ask you before you sit down. Do you want to be boxing commissioner? I said, yes. He said, then between here and the seat, you think why you want to be boxing commissioner. So you weren't prepared at all then? No. Oh. And he liked that. He said, what I like about this is you haven't had days to think about this. You really didn't think it was me, did you? I said, no. He said, the reason I contacted you is because Jose Torres, who was the chairman then, is leaving. He's writing a book on Mike Tyson, Fire and Fear. And I wish him good luck. But all he's doing is running around the country. He's not doing his job as commissioner. And I was looking for a new commissioner I'm a fight fan, he said, and I watch you on television, and I know that 1982, you got fired for telling the truth. Holy crap. He said, I like that. He said, would you bring that same passion to your job as commissioner? And I said, yes, I would, sir. And I believe I could do this and this and this because I really love boxing. It's it's." in my soul, and I I talked about it. And then he said, can I ask you a question? Why? We've done a little background check on you. You have never voted in an election. I was 39 years old. He said, why have you never voted in an election? 
<laughs> and I said, well, this is going to probably get me thrown out of here. But the reason I've never voted in an election, November 22nd, 1963. He said, the assassination of President Kennedy. He said, what does it have to do with you not voting? I said, sir, here's where I'm getting thrown out of your office. I believe that our government had our president assassinated. You cannot tell me that a single gunman hit the president with bullseye after bullseye with a bolt-action rifle that you had to aim, fire, boom, bolt it, re-aim, bang, in just a few seconds with all these bullseyes. It just can't be done. When, in fact, and I said I've read every single, everything on the assassination, Rush to Judgment, the Warren Commission report. I've read every word of it. And he said, I'm impressed. I said, because I have to believe for myself that there was a single gunman or not. And I don't believe it. I believe that he was hit from the front with at least one or two shots. And he said, do you know that I believe that too? Wow. He said, so no, you're not getting thrown out of here. You're a guy who speaks from the heart. You spoke the truth. It cost you your job. You bring that same passion, that same truthfulness to the job. You're going to be the best commissioner ever. He said, I have one final question for you. How would you rate your loyalty? I said, my loyalty? He said, yeah. He said, would you say that's one of your stronger points, not a strong point? He said, because... I'm going to put you on my team. I'm going to make you one of my guys. One day my ship is going to go down. When it's going down, are you going to be one of the guys who lead the coup to get me out of there, or are you going to jump ship? I said, sir, my loyalty all my life, I'm going to say this in a way that you're going to cringe. I said, I have a mafia-like <laughs> loyalty. He said, you're right, I'm cringing. He said, but I get it. I said, that's me. When I am with you, right or wrong, I'm with you. Fiercely loyal. And if you, if you say something that I don't agree with, I don't tell anybody. It stays in me. I am with you all the way. And I said, I guess the only way you'll ever find out is when your ship does go down, I am going to be standing at your side with your family because that's who I am. And when his ship did go down and he was elected, uh, when he was thrown out of office, when Governor George Wacky Pataki took over, mm -hmm. I stood there. I was in the hotel with him. When his ship went down and I was standing with his family, Chris Cuomo, who's a friend of mine now, mm -hmm. Andrew Cuomo, who's our governor, and I was standing right there, and he hugged them all, his wife, Matilda, and then he looks over to me, he comes over to me, and hugs me. He said, my favorite commissioner. Wow. Tears are rolling down my face. He said, stop. Do not cry for me. I said, I'm not crying for you. And he said, you're going to be able to get a job. He said, you're going to be unemployed, but you're going to get a job. I said, I'm not crying for me either. He said, then who are you crying? If you're not crying for me and you're not crying for you, who are you crying for? I said, the people of New York who made an incredible mistake. Wow. With that, he gives me a hug. 
I leave, and sure enough, a few months later, I get fired. <laughs> I'm unemployed. It's in the paper. Boxing Commissioner Randy Gordon has been removed from his job, blah, blah, blah. Floyd Patterson is coming on. Governor Cuomo calls me up and said, I read the news that you've been thrown out of your job. Are you okay? I said, I'm unemployed. I'll, I'll find something. He said, just to help you along, I'm going to send you a blank check. What? Put any number that you want in there to help you stay afloat. I'll give you 50 years to pay it back. I looked at him and said, sir, I can't accept that. He goes, Randy, what you've meant to me, your words to me of honesty and everything else, the job you did as boxing commissioner will go down in history. You were the best commissioner New York ever had, probably ever will have. You're my family. I'm sending you a check. He sent me a check. I never used it. But that's what we meant to each wow. other. And that's all about Glove Affair. Glove Affair. Well, that's the same. You went all so personal there. with stuff. You didn't just say, this guy won the fight, this guy. You went so personal with your relationships that you bonded. And another relationship that you bonded that I read about in Glove Affair was with one Mr. Ali. How did you become friends? Because now, Randy, here's what – and I can never relate to you on the level of that. But, like, growing up, my radio heroes, like Opie and Anthony, Mike Francesa, right. these guys yeah. – now I talk to Opie every day on the phone, and I'm doing shows with all these famous comedians. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I used to pay to watch Andrew Dice Clay. Now I'm doing shows with him, Bill Burr and these guys. How does a guy from Long Island who was in a wheelchair watching boxing become friends with Muhammad Ali? Because one step at a time. You know, World Boxing Magazine, Ring Magazine getting bigger and bigger and bigger, ESPN. And right when I started – at Ring in 79, Ali was at the end of his career, losing to Michael uh, Leon Spinks, and then getting beaten up by Larry Holmes. I'm ringside for the fight. I was with Ali the night before his fight. Then comes back about a year later in just a fight he never should have taken against Trevor Burbick. Mm -hmm. So I was friends with him as, as a journalist, and it, you know, he, he was friends with all the boxing writers, and you couldn't help but treat Ali beautifully. And then in 1988, I become commissioner, and he comes into New York and calls my secretary and asks if he could speak to me, and she buzzes me. Commissioner Muhammad Ali is on the phone. Oh, God. Hello, Commissioner Muhammad Ali. I'm, I'm in town for a few days. I would love to have lunch with you, just you and me. Can you come over to my hotel? And I went to his hotel, and we just became, he already knew me, but now he knows me as somebody different, as the commissioner in New York. And he said, I'm not going to call you Randy anymore. I'm going to call you commissioner. And I said, Muhammad, we're friends. You call me Randy. You are the commissioner. I'm always going to call you the commissioner. When you're the president, they call you Mr. President. You were Mr. Commissioner to me, and you always will be. Well, in 1992, I'm at a luncheon with Muhammad Ali, and this is maybe the, the most proud moment of my business life. He was being presented with a humanitarian award, and I'm sitting there at the dais, it's it's Muhammad on my right, there's me, and there's Leroy Neiman, the great artist mm -hmm. on my left. Sure. And he's sitting there sketching. And I figure he's sketching Ali. He was. He was sketching 
one of Ali and one of me, which afterward he gave to me, it hangs in my house, to have Leroy Neiman do a sketch on me. Now, there's a couple of politicians, and as we know, politicians are all about politicians. No. And a, and a guy gets up there, one of them, and he goes, I want to tell you something about Muhammad Ali. And Ali is whispering to me, he don't even know my name. And I'm sitting up there covering my mouth, laughing, and Ali is laughing. thousand people are out in the audience. There are thousand set of eyes fixed on us. And, and I, I covered my mouth, and I said, Muhammad, everybody's looking at us. He said, if they only knew what we were talking <laughs> about. Well, then it came time for me to get up. And it was another one of these unrehearsed, because I didn't realize until maybe two days before that I was going to be doing this. But I didn't even know, even think that they would call me. I thought they just wanted me. I kept forgetting that I'm the commissioner yeah. of New York. I'm the fight fan who got every great job. Not the commissioner, not somebody who's going to sit next to Ali and then in front of a thousand people give him this award. And I got up totally unrehearsed and I said, I want everybody to know this. And Muhammad, I said, you know, here it was, it was 1992. And I said, back in 1967, there was an 18-year-old high school kid on Long Island who was a big fight fan. And Muhammad, you refused to step forward for induction. And Ring Magazine's Nat Fleischer pulled you out of the ratings and refused to talk about you. And when he pulled you out, it was such a slap in the face. And then the New York State Athletic Commission, Commissioner Edwin Dooley, pulled your license. You were no longer allowed to fight in New York. And every other state then pulled your license to go with it. I said, well, that 18-year-old kid stands in front of you now as that position, those two positions, one, the former editor of Ring Magazine and the commissioner in New York who pulled your license. And, Muhammad, I want you to know that if that was today, not only would I not take you out of the ratings, I'd put you on the cover for standing up for your beliefs, and if I was the commissioner in New York then, as I am now, I would not pull your license. I would put you on a pedestal for everything you stood for. You are indeed the greatest of all time. With that, 1,000 people rose to their feet, applauded. Muhammad came over to me, kissed me, and said, I love you, man raised my hands up in the air, and we stood there with our hands up in the air together. We just became inseparable after that, and I spent a lot of time in his hotel room having breakfast with him alone, lunch with him, talking about the thriller in Manila, about the Sonny Liston fights, about everything you can imagine, about politics, about race, about this, about that. Muhammad was absolutely everything, just a role model. And he went through a lot of things mm -hmm. in his life. He went through an anti-white thing, which he then later looked at. He said, that was wrong of me. I, I'm about people. There are people I don't like because they're not good people. He said, I love everybody, and he did.
and he's just an unbelievable one of history's greatest humans. Two things on Muhammad Ali. Two questions I have actually for you because forget about being a friend. You're legitimately the encyclopedia of boxing. Maybe it's racism. Maybe it's religious bigotry. But a lot of times you bring up Ali, you're going to hear draft dodger. He did this. He did that, which is frustrating. And it's kind of a slap in the face to his career. But let me ask you this. The biggest fight of his career, because when he passed away, everybody was the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. And then people were like, well, he wasn't the greatest. The biggest fight of his life around the corner from here, fight of the century, he loses. Does that have any influence or was that just Frazier was a better man that night? Frazier was a better man that night. And the two of them were actually friends going into that. Joe did a lot to help Ali. Mm -hmm. And then Ali wrongfully, and he, he told me it was wrong of him, almost turned his back and started, not turned his back, but in the theatrical way that he would promote a fight, Joe was the gorilla. And, of course, they fought a second fight, which was dull. And who would have ever thought that they would have fought a third fight after their dull second fight? The Thriller in Manila. Well, there was no greater promoter than Ali, and Joe didn't like the way Ali promoted it. It's going to be a chill of a killer when I beat the gorilla in Manila. And he, he would take a little gorilla yeah, dolly. He walked he'd, around. He'd, he'd punch and, oh, no, Joe Frazier, Joe Frazier, everybody talking about Joe Frazier. And he'd be whooping on this little gorilla doll. But I asked him, and this is 1992. We have this real one-on-one -on -one talk. I said, you don't seem to like Joe. He said, no, I, I love Joe now. I love Joe. But Joe, I heard him so badly, so often that Joe doesn't like me. I use my influence with Joe, my friendship with Joe, to bring them back together. And I got them together. I got them to sit down the block from where we are at Madison Square Garden near the end of their lives. They sat together at a Nick game. And the PA announcer said, in this, you know, he comes on, he says, mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen, sitting at courtside, two of the greatest athletes of all time, who back in 1971 fought in one of the greatest boxing events and spectaculars of all time. It stopped the war in Vietnam. Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali. 20,000 people got to their feet screaming. Joe stood up first. Ali was shaking from Parkinson's. Joe helped him to his feet. They both raised their hands to the rafters at the garden. And now I think you know a little bit more about me, this emotional mush, tears <laughs> rolling down my eyes. I'm watching the two of these guys who, in 1971, I'm, I'm a senior in college, watching close circuit, whatever, never knowing they're going to become two of my best friends, watching them having hated each other, now embracing each other, Ali went to Frazier's funeral. Frazier died first of cancer. I saw Ali. He was crying on my shoulder in, in private in the back. And he was strong when he, when he went out there, but he was wearing dark glasses and everything. He loved Joe Frazier, and Frazier at the end loved him. And I know that's going to stay with me forever. Their love was something special. It really was. Boxing question. Um, you mentioned it. Uh, I watched a great documentary on the thriller in Manila. I'm fascinated by it. Ali said he, w he wasn't coming out for that final round. He was going to quit. Um, if great Ali, question. If he quits, does that affect his legacy? 
And did you think he was ever really going to quit? If he quit, yes. I don't think it would have affected his legacy at all. I think it would have made it even stronger. And what I found out, which is what is in my book, and you became the first one ever to hear this. Yep. In one of those private breakfasts with Ali, where many times I couldn't even eat just listening to him, I said, Muhammad, I've heard it, you say this so many times, that if Frazier had come out for round 15, you were not coming out. Do you say that just to be nice to Joe? Mm-hmm. And he said, no. I told Angelo, cut the gloves off. I couldn't go on. And it turned out that Angelo was about to, when he looked over his shoulder and saw Eddie Futch waving his hands at Joe, who was sitting on the stool, his mouth torn to shreds, blood pouring from his mouth, but wanting to fight one more round. Frazier was one of these warriors. He was ready to give up his life in the ring. He looked at Eddie and knew Eddie wasn't allowing him out, and he stayed there. Muhammad told me, had Joe just stood up, he said, I wasn't coming out. I had nothing left. And when I tell you nothing, he's... There was nothing inside of me. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't jab. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't throw one more punch. And then he asked me, do you remember what I did when the fight was over? And I thought about it for a second. I said, I think I remember you falling to your knees and maybe praying. He said, well, you're right. But I didn't fall to my knees. I fell. I collapsed. I had nothing left. I was basically unconscious. They helped me back to my dressing room. They wrapped me in ice. I was shivering, not from the ice, but from just because what boxing, what that kind of fight will do to you. I was urinating blood for two months. Joe Frazier broke me into pieces that night. That was the greatest. It was everything about boxing that scares me. It was the most savage fight of all time, what my two friends did to each other. They left pieces. They left chunks of each other in the ring. They destroyed each other. They made each other. It was an incredible event. We'll never see anything like it again. And it was, it left them, even though Joe still had a a dislike for Ali, which lasted for many, many years, It wasn't until the end of their lives that they got back together, and I'm so glad they did, because I know this. Even if they were enemies where they are upstairs, they'd be hugging each other and watching (laughs) boxing videos and everything else, and um, they are together in linked in boxing eternity. And I don't want to, like, keep plugging the book, but you have other stories, a Times Square story with Ali. You have some of the best stories of Muhammad Ali that was so personal. And these are all stories that... That's why this whole thing is called Glove Affair. It's my, I thought of the title. I, I created, just like I created many of the Ring magazines, that's my cover that I designed that cover. It was in my head, and when I told it to Roman and Littlefield, they put it together, and when they gave me the picture, I said, this is the picture that's in my head. Go with it. And to me, I, I might write 40 more books in my life. This is, to me the book of 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 my life 
question on it. How'd you get Tracy Morgan to do the, uh, the, 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 the intro? Tracy Morgan, the very funny, the very lovable Tracy Morgan, he's a fight fan. He met Jerry Cooney. He comes up to the studio a lot. And right before the book was done, I said, Tracy, I know this is a crazy, and I could, I could never afford it. I, you know, I figured he's going to say, yeah, $100,000, I'll write you forward. I asked him to write the forward. You want me to write your forward? And I said, yeah. Y- you want me? And I'm like, yeah. He said, done. When do you need it by? I said, you have about a month. He said, give me your email. I gave him my email. About three days later, I got it in an email. And again, the mush that was me when I read that. Of course. I'm, I'm crying. My wife is crying. And there was a lot of that what went into this book. And if I could just speak about Wayne Kelly for a moment. Oh, yeah, of course. Ma- I was actually going to go Wayne Kelly next. You said emotional. So maybe go to Wayne Kelly. Maybe the, the greatest referee out there. And, and the trials and tribulations he went through to become a referee. And I'm not going to... Um, because there's somebody I dump on big time in the chapter who mm-hmm. kept him from becoming a, a referee. As I'm writing this, Wayne Kelly was a Vietnam vet. Wayne Kelly was an, an American hero. That I met him the week he got home from Vietnam. We became brothers. I didn't know, none of us knew what PTSD was back then. We used to run on the beach, Jones Beach on Long Island. And as soon as a helicopter... Like would just come, uh, the Coast Guard would send a helicopter over Jones Beach just looking, and as he heard the wop 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 of the of the helicopter, he pushed me down in the sand oh. and run over to people on the beach and throw them down. Go get down, get down, get down, and they had no idea what was going on. He pushed them all in the sand as the helicopter went right past us, and this went on. Until one day in a Chinese restaurant, he beat the snot out of a out of a waiter. He was having flashbacks, and that's what PTSD does to mm-hmm. these guys. He got help for it. the The waiter actually knew about it because his brother was in Vietnam. Oh my! God. So he didn't press charges against Wayne. Wayne did get help. I first my first act of business as commissioner in 1988. That Monday. First thing I did was make Wayne Kelly a referee who went on to become the best referee in boxing and even the best referee in boxing right now whose name is Jack Reese sure, in, sure. in California. Jack Reese will say Wayne Kelly was the best. I learned a lot from him. And when I got the phone call from my, my buddy Peter Frukoff that that February, uh, he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm in the car. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just leaving the gym. He said, don't start the car. Don't drive. He said, Wayne had a heart attack. And I go, what? Where is he? What hospital? I'm going to visit him. He said, Randy, he didn't make it. <sighs> I'm, I'm losing it now. You went in the book so much about your friendship, so much what he meant to you, to boxing. You could have did a whole book on him because I'm reading that, no idea who he was, and I got emotional talking about it. That's how much he meant to you, and that's what I meant in the beginning, Randy, when you said, when I said that you put your heart, soul, literally blood, sweat, and tears in this book because the way you speak about friendships and people and Wayne is just shows the kind of person you are, man. You know, doing the right thing means a lot to me, being a good friend, being loyal, 
working hard, working your ass off in whatever it is that you do, giving back to humanity, um, living your life to the fullest, not just being here for you, but being here for you and everybody else to, to have a wife, to have, I'm married to my best friend, to my high school girlfriend, who is still my high school girlfriend. When I go, this is funny, many times she'll go to the airport with me, and as we're about to leave, like at at security, and in the days before 9-11, when you could, she used to walk up to the gate with me, she'd be crying her eyes out, and one time this old lady and this old man, they get on the plane, they say, oh, that was so cute, the way your wife was hugging you like that, how long are you going away for? I said, I'll be back tomorrow night. (laughs) <laughs> that's Ronnie and I. She goes to every fight with me. Um, so just to have the love of your life, to do just to doing what I want to do every single day is taking me through life, and I am enjoying this life. We spoke when we first met. I said the first time we ever met, I don't, I don't know if you can remember this. Um, I had like an hour to kill. I came to this show that you and Jerry did. And you and I went in the lunchroom at Sirius, and um, she packed you your lunch, and you were just talking, and you spoke I so I got my hi- lunch. Yeah, and you spoke so highly of her. And uh, at the time, I was just dating Julia, who was my best friend. The way you spoke about her being your best friend and this and that, how she watches fights, I'm like, wow, that's what Julia does. And I swear, Randy, I, I knew I was going to marry her because you were like, yeah, she watches all the fights with me. I'm like, wow, Julia watches every Yankee game. She'll watch a game in February, spring training game. She does everything to be my best friend. Mm-hmm. So your relationship impacted me. I'm like, wow, this is the kind of person she is. But is your wife, is she really a boxing fan or she does it for you? I, to this day, I can't tell you. <laughs> That's what I, I don't know if she's really a Kentucky fan. But I think fan. she is because she knows She goes to every Ring 8 meeting with me. She goes, she, all, they all know her. She doesn't know this, but at, at a, in December, December 8th, I'm telling you right now, Jerry Cooney and I are being honored by Ring 8. We're being given the media award. Okay. And to both of us, we've never had a media award. We're being given as the best journalist, the best boxing journalist of ni- uh, 2019. Jerry and I are going to be there. We're going to make fun of each other of and everything. The, the real twins, 6656. Yeah, six. yeah. um, it means so much. She is being given an award that night, and she doesn't know about it. My wife is being wow. given an award just for for being like this outstanding boxing wife. She watches the fights with me. Um, the other day I did a UFC fight pass with Jerry. She was sitting by herself watching UFC fight pass. She supports me wholeheartedly. She knows the fighters. They know her. I, I, yeah, she, she is a fighter. She does like it. She does like it. When Patrick Day recently passed away, I was in my office. I knew Patrick Day very well. I'm crying. She didn't know. I said, Patrick Day died. She comes in. She's, she cried with me. Very special relationship, and, and you obviously have that. One day you're going to have grandkids. You're going to have kids. You're going to have grandkids. Oh. We got 12 grandkids. She gives of herself. She's uber grandma. There's nothing that the kids take advantage of. Mom, could you come in and, and drive her, pick her up over here, drop him off over here, take him to soccer, pick him up, bring him to baseball, bring him to wrestling. She does it with a smile on her face. And I'm like, I'll call the kids and I'll say, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you busting mom's chops? Like, 
because they know that this is what she lives for. I live for the kids. I live for her. I live for my boxing. I live for my friends. And that's the way I wish everybody, that no racism in this world, mm-hmm. there'd be no wars, there'd be nothing but love, love, and more love. Before we finish up with how you got into the radio thing with Cooney, I'm going to give you a few quick hits. You ready? Mm-hmm. I know you interviewed Trump. Any other dream interviews that you want? Any boxer you wish can sit down with you at your show who you want to interview? Unfortunately, he's not here. He, he passed away in 1948, the legendary Jack Johnson. He was the Muhammad Ali of World War I. Mm-hmm. He was the Muhammad Ali way before Ali. I used to talk to Ali about Jack Johnson. He's, I wish I could have met Jack Johnson. If I could get in that time machine, I want to talk to Jack Johnson. He was persecuted by white America, where, remember, it was years before Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. White America didn't want a black heavyweight champion. They didn't want Muhammad Ali. They didn't want Jack Johnson. I want him. I want I want Jack Johnson. That, that's the guy that I want to talk to. I got to speak to Joe Lewis. I got to speak to Rocky Marciano. I never got to speak to Jack Johnson. I want to get to know him. I, uh, I just did a show from Teddy Atlas's house, and he took me to his basement, and the memorabilia he has mm-hmm. is just out of this world. You've been around, too. Coolest piece of memorabilia you have? I hate to do this to you, but I had so much memorabilia that was stolen. Oh, really? I had, I had more than anybody. Oh, So I never bothered collecting again, but I think the one thing that I still do have, we have it in a vault, is a ticket from the John L. Sullivan-James J. Corbett fight signed by John L. Sullivan. Wow. Jimmy Jacobs, the wealthy manager of Mike Tyson, once offered me 10000 on the spot. He brought the 10000 when I was editor of Ring Magazine, and he said, listen, I know what Bert Sugar pays you. I'm going to give you a year's salary. And I said, I'll tell you what, Jimmy. I'll give you this ticket for nothing. You can hold on to it. It can be your ticket. It's mine that I'm loaning you. Like when you loan something I, to me. I'll loan it to you yeah. forever. But it's my ticket. If I say I want it back, you got to give it back. Mm-hmm. I want to buy it. And he starts going, 15000 wow. I'll give you 20000 And you wouldn't do it. 25000 Randy, he said, stop being stubborn. 30000 I'll give you for this. I said, Jimmy, there's no amount of money I will take for this. And I locked it away. I have George Foreman's original license, his first license, 18-year-old George Foreman, his first pro license. So those are some of the things that weren't stolen. How did stuff get stolen if you don't uh, mind I, I loaned it out to a guy that I thought was a friend. Oh, what a piece of crap. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And guess what? I mean, stolen. Stolen. He took it. He took it. He Whoa. said, "You know, like you can't prove it." It turned out he he was a surgeon with a very bad attitude, or whatever. And I, I said, "Man, you should just die." He got brain cancer and he died. His family has the collection. I don't, they'll never give it to you because I'll, I'll never see it again. But you know, it hurts to talk oh, about memorabilia. Yeah. But it, it's amazing that I almost that I always feel that I wished his demise. To, yeah. I, I know I have to get you out of here. True or false? Were you instrumental in getting um, UFC banned from New York? <laughs> Someone told me that about you. Was that true? Very true. I was commissioner <laughs> in New York. But, 19- you love, but you love the UFC. I love it. Yeah. But back in 1993, when they called it no holds barred fighting. Mm-hmm. It was nothing more than street fighting without the beer bottle. 
And when I watch these 12 to 6 elbows, which is like striking a guy in the ground with a hammer, mm-hmm. when I watched soccer style kicks to a down fighter's head, I said, not in New York is this going to happen, and I banned it. And two years later, when I left the commission, Governor George Wacky Pataki was asked, what's the commission's stand on, on this no-holds-barred? He said, what is it? And when he said that Randy Gordon had banned it, he goes, okay, it's banned. He signed it into law, and it was banned. Where it remained banned until 2016, the great Mark Ratner, who was my, my brother and commissioners, the, the head of the... Uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission. He was the executive director. Even the day I banned it, I called him. And I said, Mark, I banned it. He said, you banned it? I'm banning it in Nevada. Never knowing that, you know, years later they're going to change the rules, bring in new safety rules and everything. And it is. It does look vicious if you don't know about it. Mm-hmm. It's not. Many guys, it's grappling, it's wrestling, it's arm bars, leg bars, and this and that, tapping out, boom, over, done. Nobody gets hurt. My grandkids and I, we all playfully, you know, put me in a chokehold or whatever. And then I, grandpa's tapping out. Five kids, 12 grandkids. Uh, name one person, one of your grandkids or kids said, <laughs> daddy or grandpa, I need to meet who? You mean if they were to say. No, th- did they ever ask you to meet somebody like grandpa, daddy, I need to meet this boxer? No. Really? They're all, they know about the boxing, and they're, they go from age 2 to age 16. But no, and they've been in studio with me. No, none of them uh, have that, that boxing passion. You know, my 16-year-old granddaughter is more, you know, into Lady Gaga. So, <laughs> no, they, um, it, it's all theatrical stuff with them, and they'd rather, and my family, a son, one of my sons-in-law, is a vice president of the NBA, and we're always in February. I'll be going to Chicago sure. to the All Star Game, where one of my daughters lives, and her son, my grandson, Ryan, is big into basketball. He wants to go and sit courtside, so Uncle Michael's going to get him courtside seats. So it's 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 other sports. They watch me on TV. They listen to Sirius XM, or sometimes we'll start getting into some. You know, just really seedy conversation, me and Jerry. And I'm like, oh, no, my grandkids <laughs> are listening to the show. Coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back. Oh, God, here we go. Um, coolest person in my phone, aside from you? Besides me, of course. Uh, aside from you. And Jerry, who no and, one considers Jerry, cool. Okay. No one considers Jerry, Jerry Cooney, cool. Um, you know, it used to be Muhammad Ali because he would text. Oh he wouldn't God. text many, many That's people. That's a great answer. Um, who is the coolest? Because I have so many. I know you do. Uh, you know, from Rosie Perez. Um, um, I'm a, a, the first lady a, of boxing. She's Tr- awesome. Tracy, Tracy Morgan. I, I would have to say That's Tracy Morgan. That's a great Morgan. answer. That's a great answer. Tracy is just, he is all about, I, I find that with it almost like the same, you know, he got in this car accident. He was in a coma for days. Mm-hmm. He woke up from this coma just an entirely a, person who was about everybody on the planet wants to spread the love he doesn't want to see syria and turkey mm. he doesn't want to see all the he wants everybody like i do i want everybody to hold hands and and whoever it is that you pray to pray to them go ahead and pray to them but no animosity whatsoever no hatred whatsoever there's no thugs running around the street punching each other there's nothing but love on the streets commissioner gordon gets secluded to an island for whatever reason 
and they tell you you can only watch three boxers currently. Oh, Who, because I can't say which guys because you watch every fight. Which three guys for you are appointment watching? Like I hey. love the, a guy by the name of Regis Progray, 140-pounder, who's fighting in the World Boxing Super Series finals very soon against Josh Taylor. It's gonna, it could be fight of the year. He, Regis he was Progray. just on my show. He's a great guy. Regis? Great guy, I, yeah. Absolutely is. So Regis Progray is, is one of them. Deontay Wilder okay. is another, um, really not the, the braggadocious um, guy that you hear. He, he's just trying to build himself up, and sometimes he runs the mouth before the brain goes into gear. Um, and the third fighter would have to be, um, gee, I, I want to say Tyson Fury. Okay. Um, I am just enjoying the entertainment that he, he puts out there. Um, so... I, I think what I have to say, Tyson Fury, but there's just really so many others. But just because of the entertainment value and everything, and I'm just enjoying him so much. Yeah, Tyson Fury. I gave two minutes. Is two minutes good? Yeah. Does it get frustrating to you being a UFC guy too? I'm not a UFC guy, but if they say, hey, this guy has to fight this guy, that fight happens. Does that bother you in boxing that we know these two guys need to fight and yet it drags on and drags on? Is that just so... It drains you, doesn't it? You need that fight to happen. That's why the Prograde Taylor fight's so huge. That fight needs to happen. It's going to happen. Does it frustrate you that we all want Wilder Fury next week? We all want this guy and this guy, and it's not happening? Some of the fights that we want to happen, Wilder and Fury, Wilder and Joshua, that marinated too long. Joshua went out and fought Andrew Ruiz and gets knocked out. Mm -hmm. So then Wilder fights uh, Tyson Fury last December. We want a rematch. We're not having the rematch this year. So you might say, well, the fights that we want are not happening. No, that's not happening, but it will happen. It's going to happen next year. The fights, so many of the fights that we want are happening. Regis Progray, the 140-pounder against Josh Taylor is happening very, very soon. The other day, we saw two unbeaten powerhouses in the light heavyweight division. We saw a new star being born, Artur Betterbiev. Better BF. We call him Better BF, Better BF. <laughs> he is a freaking light heavyweight monster who I see nothing but greatness for. He's a, a killer hitter, an unnatural hitter. He's like a Babe Ruth kind of. He throws, he swings, it's out of here. That's how good he is. And he fought an undefeated guy who was being trained by Teddy Atlas, mm -hmm. who I thought was going to win the fight. I, the lost, nail, yeah, the I lost a bet to Jerry Cooney. So did I. Jerry, I lost. <laughs> Jerry picked better BF. I picked Vodzik. Jerry said, I know you hate popcorn. If I win the bet, you got to eat some popcorn. So I think tonight on the air, oh. I'm going to puke on the air. I'm going <laughs> to puke. I can't stand popcorn, but I'm going to fulfill the bet. Well, you just said on air. Plug your show because I truly think, and I, you said it before, it is the go-to boxing show. And I've known you for a few years now. And a few years ago, it was a great show. Now you're getting on, like I was sitting here, your phone rang five times. People want to come oh, on it, the it, show. It's going nuts. It's crazy, the fights, the guys you get, the people that come on. You're like kind of appointment listening, and this is the truth with me. I listen to it every Monday and Friday. When there's a big fight coming up or a big fight just happened, it's 6 p.m. You have to tune into it. How'd that gig happen? Oh, no, you loving doing it. It was nine, oh, 19. It was 2007. I started doing, at, I started working for Sirius XM doing a Fight Club, an MMA show. For two years, I did Fight Club. Then one day, the president of Sirius walks past me in 2009, Scott Greenstein. I say, hey, Scott. He goes, hey, Randy. And then he stops. 
And he said, why are you working here doing an MMA show when you should be doing a boxing show? I said, I, don't, I never thought that the powers that be wanted a boxing show. They asked me to do an MMA show. He said, how about, I love boxing. I want a boxing show. And then he changed the subject. He said, by the way, do you know Jerry Cooney? And I said, yeah. Now, I hadn't spoken to Jerry in several years. We were friendly, but he said, can you get Jerry Cooney up here? He said, I'll give you my credit card. We have a a driving service, Mm -hmm. a limousine service. Tell Jerry we'll pick him up, bring him in here, bring him back by limo. I want to have lunch with, with you and Jerry. Okay. I called Jerry. With, hey, Jerry, what's going on? I said, Jerry, this is crazy, but the president is serious. It's like a Jerry Cooney fan, and he's dying to meet you. He wants to take you to lunch. Would you come up and just say hello to him? I mean, he's a big guy. Scott Greenstein. You know, he's, you know, he's president of serious. Jerry said, sure, why not? A couple days later, limousine picks him up. Jerry comes in. I walk him in, introduce him to Scott. Hey, Randy, sit down, you and Jerry. And we're talking. And then he looks at Jerry, Scott looks at Jerry and says, Jerry, how would you like to be the host of a boxing show? And I'm thinking, huh? You know, he's asking Jerry to You be just the offered host. me this job. And Jerry goes, I'd love to. You mean like me and Larry Holmes? And Scott goes, no, like you and Randy. And we look at each other, what? He said, do you want it? And we both in unison said, yes. He goes, done. I'll go to the... Head of sports here at Sirius, Stevie Cohn, who used to be a big producer at WFAN. Mm-hmm. And he went there. Steve calls me up the next day. He said, can you come in? We'll talk about this. And, and he circles a date like six weeks down the road. He said, you're on the air. I got together with Jerry. We started talking about this and that. And, and they said, you're going to be the lead host. You're going to open the show. And you're going to use Jerry. You bounce everything off Jerry and take it away. We're going on our 11th year. 11th year, and you're the premier must-listen-to boxing show. That's crazy, isn't it? It's nuts. It's, it's totally, again, this is part of my glove affair. I am the fan I, who got every freaking job in the... A fan wants to sit rings. He wants to meet a fighter. I'm the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. I am the commissioner of the state of New York. Maybe the... You know what? I do believe I was the best one ever. I was, for two years, the biggest casino in America, Foxwoods Casino. I'm their promoter. I'm their director of boxing. I, I work for ESPN, USA Network. I started the USA Tuesday Night Fights. Just as they started, I became commissioner. I left. They hired Sean O'Grady, who spends the next 10 mm-hmm. years doing the Tuesday <laughs> Night Fights. I'm, doing, I'm with, with the MSG Network. Now I'm with Sirius XM Radio for 11 years with my buddy Jerry Cooney. This is a strange life, and for me it's been an absolute – I've won the lottery 50 times over. One last serious thing. Um, Patrick Day tragically just passes oh. away. Uh, a few months ago, Zab Judah, we thought he was going to pass away. Uh, Vols Dick just went to the hospital. Is it just – more attention now, more medical things like, hey, let's get him in the hospital to get checked out, or is it becoming more vicious? And I don't know the answer to this, but it just seems that maybe because I'm maybe following all these random fights now, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's social media, but Zab Judah, we thought he was going to pass away. And then you hear about, all oh, this boxer almost passed away. And I, 
when people say, unfortunately, Boom Boom came on my show, I don't even bring up the whole incident. But when there's a few boxes, oh, he killed someone in the ring. And they say it so passingly, which bothers me so much. Now Patrick Day just passes away. And like I said, the other, Volzik was just in the hospital. Is it becoming more vicious or is there something going on maybe more that we don't know about? I don't think it's becoming more vicious, but we don't know what went on with Patrick Day. We don't know what went on with a lot of these other fighters. It's sparring. Many of these guys spar too hard. Did Patrick Day come into the ring with a brain bleed? I think the sparring has to be really monitored. I'm not into tough sparring. I'm into sparring where you learn, where you learn. So I don't know what happened with Patrick Day or Vozik was in a tough fight, but again, we don't know what happened in the sparring. It was a very tough fight against the guy with hammer fist, maybe the hardest hitter I've ever seen in the light heavyweight division. I don't know what kind of medical testing. They do have pretty stringent exams in Pennsylvania where mm-hmm. that fight took place. I don't know what it was like in, in Chicago. I know that um, perhaps they should have stricter training where guys as soon as a guy gets knocked out, do not have doctors come in and open his eyes and look in his pupils. That's wasting time. Stretch it, boom. He is unconscious for a reason. It's called a concussion. How bad was that concussion? You could be in a car driving down the street. Somebody rear-ends you. You get knocked out. Why did you get knocked out? You didn't slam your head. Nobody punched you in the face because it's the whiplash. It's the rotation of the head. When that happens, the brain strikes inside the skull, causing a concussion, a brain bleed. How bad is that brain bleed? So when you see a fighter go down and out, there is no reason to take any time to look at him. The second he's down and out, stretcher comes in, you're out of there. Within seconds, out of the ring. He may come to on the stretcher. That's fine. Take him to the hospital. Give him a CAT scan. Give him, give him an MRI. And they'll see, no, it's no big deal. No big deal. But every concussion is a big deal. Football players go through it. Every game in the NFL, when you watch on Sunday, America's game, you're watching every single Sunday. Every game, if somebody comes out of that game, a cripple, legs, Shoulders ripped apart, torn apart, concussion, CTE that the NFL hid for years. Boxing's not hiding it. We're trying to prevent it. We're trying to stop this. We're going to figure it out. More medical testing is necessary. Maybe some of the big promoters have to be hit with a little bit bigger charge. They're making millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. They've got to figure out. Some commissions like New York do it better than others. But yet it happened in New York a few years mm-hmm. ago to, to Magomed Abdul Salamov. He was in a 10-round war. But there were signs in the corner. He was saying he can't see. He's got a headache. He can't breathe. Uh, his eye was swelling. He had a broken orbital bone. What is going on? The commissions have to do a better job. And I'm talking about a much better job. And you haven't heard the end of this with Patrick Day. There's going to be more coming mm-hmm. out, I promise you. This can't say anything now, but it is going to happen. You're going to hear about it. You're hearing about it first right here. You're hearing about it. There's going to be some major, major news about that. And again, I can't say anything about it. You will hear about it, and it is going to make boxing an even better sport. Or in some areas, it's actually going to kill it. If the commissions, if states cannot afford to do what they have to do, there will be no boxing. It will be banned by the government in those states.
New Jersey Boxing Hall of Famer, the only man to cover Tyson's first 20 fights. which New York State Hall of Fame. Oh, are you New York State Hall of Fame? Yeah, a couple of years ago. First guy ever to cover, you're the only person to cover all of Tyson's first 20 fights. First one, yeah. You predicted the Bogolata riot, basically. You've seen boxing from every seat, from everything. You truly, and I hate to sound corny with the guests, you really inspire that if you love something, just go do it. Just put yourself out there. You ran to Ring, Ma- Ring Magazine, a kid from Long Island, 70 years old. Your life's getting better every day. The things that is going on in your life, absolute blast. Glove Affair, amazing book. Your show is awesome. Lucky to be friends with you, man. This was a blast. Thank you so much. I mean, again, my, my Glove Affair, which can be uh, purchased on Amazon.com. And if anybody does get the book and, and they want me to sign the book, uh, all I have to do is reach out to me on Facebook, Randy Kamish Gordon. Uh, I will just send me where you want it. And I send a sticker. I autograph it to you. I'll sign Randy Gordon. I'll sign it to whatever your name, however you want it. I will sign it like that. Everybody should chase their dream. Don't just don't sit back and be somebody average. If if what you're doing you love, keep doing it. If it's not what you want, go after it. I went after it without any. I had no connections in writing, in television, in radio. I did it. If I could do it, you can do it. A kid in a wheelchair from Long Island running up to Ring Magazine. Now you're the head of the boxing world, Ben. My- that, that, that's what it's all about. That's, that's what life is all about. And I'm doing my damnedest to, to just give back. And, and, and again, I am a people person. If you're a people, I love you. That's the way it is. Mike, I love you. I love you too. And we're going to finish with this because I'm one of those guys who make a lot of lists. I make lists with obsessively, obnoxiously, I make lists. You, you Forget about friendships. Forget about weight class. Top five boxes of all time. I have to ask you to do it. I know it's corny and cliche. Everyone has a list. Top five boxes of all time. I think both sugars are up there. Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard. Okay. I think that Henry Armstrong, who had an amazing record, a knockout record, won titles in so many different divisions, had a 1939 that you'll just never see uh, five title fights in one month. Henry Armstrong is up there. Muhammad Ali has to be on that list. Floyd Mayweather, I I think, built the record, but he's not among the greatest. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's in the top 100 greatest of all time. Um, So I've given you four. I've given you both Sugar Rays. I've given you uh, Henry Armstrong. I've given you uh, Muhammad Ali and very possibly a a, a guy, boy, oh boy, um, I think Marvin Hagler, marvelous Marvin Hagler could be put there. I think that Harry Greb could be put there as well. To me, a classic matchup, that dream matchup, is Harry Greb against marvelous Marvin Hagler. Those, those would be my guys. Awesome way to finish it. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this, man. Thank you so much. I'll be listening to you on SiriusXM soon. Thank you. SiriusXM at the fights every Monday and Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. Channel 156. Me and gentleman Jerry Cooney. Thank you so much, Mike. I love you. I love you too, brother.